Hey everybody, this is Zach. Uh, this is um, recovering me. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, the reason it's recovering Richard is uh, today we're going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, and and uh, I take it he watched it for the first time yesterday. <laughs> I've I think I've seen that on like UPN or like uh, probably w- yeah WB like on Sundays, you know, in the middle of the summer when they've just run out of films. <laughs> And like they bought Literally the rights. every other film. Yeah, it's the end of like August. They bought the rights. They're like, well, we might as well just put it on. We can sell a couple ads, uh, and then uh, some guy sheds like a few tears, and then he hits he hits the schedule button. Well, uh, yeah, like b- before we get into that, uh, the the actual discussion of the movie and really the history is is mainly the interesting bits of it um is uh let's, let's talk about me me me's uh did you want to go first uh yeah yeah uh okay. putting putting that movie in my history is definitely the interesting bit for me um <laughs> so let's see uh i've been playing um some games in between uh work bits um which hasn't been very uh, very much, but you know something's better than nothing. So okay. I finished Doom, uh, the 2016 release. Oh, nice! It was a hell of a lot of fun. How did you like it? It was good. It's good. It's a very um, it's probably one of the best games of its kind. I'd probably say. Fair. Really, it really understands um, you know that it's a video game. Right. Um, and it executes on that that principle. Like, if you look at the original Doom, like, you had story and you had, um, you know, a little bit of backstory, but, like, the, the central draw was in the playing of the game. You know, the uh, exploration, some secrets, uh, just getting to shoot weapons, different kinds of enemies, that novelty. Yep. And so now you have modern game conventions. So I actually played Doom 3 as well when that came out. Um, Ooh. and that one, <laughs> that one is, uh, more to where they're trying to, um, uh, there's some cinematic elements uh, with like a little bit of horror with like the ambiance in the environment. Yeah. Um, and, but it's less, it's less tongue in cheek. Um, and they're trying to make it, you know, more like a cinematic, like modern game experience for that time. Yeah, and so I think this really reflects, and there's a really great um, documentary um, online on the Doom 2016 production. Oh, um, that yeah. seems to be a common thing that studios are doing because they did one for God of War as well. Yeah, yeah. Like so it was this, a YouTube Studios one. Yeah, so this one was a um, a game channel that uh, produces really awesome content. Um, but it's a, it's a sole proprietor and, you know, like maybe like a couple person crew and it's yeah. called no, no clip just to plug for them. If anyone's not familiar with them, no clip. Um, and they did a fantastic doom documentary. That's probably one of their best ones. Um, but then they, they did so well that they, um, brought on the attention of like other studios, um, so Bethesda actually reached, I believe, reached out to them to do a Vault 76 oh, okay. uh, documentary. And that was before it came out. Yeah. Um, and that's really, 
that's hilarious to watch in two contexts to not get too far off doom but just to plug <laughs> no clip more because that channel's just awesome fantastic yeah. um definitely go there support it you know high production value and uh you know interesting interesting stories there so um because they have long form like documentary types they also have little small clips uh every once in a while um like a month ago they did black mesa the 16-year project to remake half-life oh um and that's a fan thing where they've you know remade half-life just out, right. you know love um <laughs> And uh, they've done other stuff. Uh, the Making of Prey came out seven months ago. I'm just looking at their Demon Souls. That one was really good, too. Okay. They're making a PlayStation Classic. So they're not just like, they don't just grab from like stock footage right. and then like tell stories and things like that. They actually have interviews with developers. Oh, okay. Uh, so the one with Doom is really great because you get to um, the... Uh, get to see an interview segment and there's a larger portion as well. I mean, there's a separate section that you can watch, but he's edited it down for each of the individual interviews. So it's like, you know, it's like a long form Netflix style documentary, maybe like an hour, hour and change. Yeah. Um, but he obviously did longer interviews like with the, uh, the composer for uh, doom, right. who was also, uh, the composer on killer instinct, the, um, the last iteration that came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that game, Killer Instinct, again, to go even further on a tangent, <laughs> but I'll connect it back to Doom. They had um, game-specific uh, sound um, activation mechanics. So, like, if you went into, like, a move or, like, an action or, like, a really nice combo, like, the music would sync up with that. And that was a really integral thing that was part of Killer Instinct's, like, basically hype creation. Like, you could be mid-match you get off like a really great combo or you do like a reversal. Um, you know, they call it something else in, in Killer Instinct. Um, but then with Killer Instinct, the tide flows so strongly um, with reversal, like into reversal, into like faking out. It's it's a really great game, um, even just to watch uh, yes. uh, particularly. But anyways, the music was really great in um, Killer Instinct. And so he also worked on the uh, Doom soundtrack as well and uh you know i'm a totally like hetero person but this guy is just so sexy cool like he's just so sexy cool like, he, <laughs> he talks like this and he's like you know and then we really wanted to like amp up the music and then he's just like you know he starts playing like his eight string like uh mayonnaise like guitar and like showing like the chug riffs and getting him off and it's like man this dude is like too sexy um and it's, so, it sounds like he's kind of like that guy that's the meme of, uh, what is it, Peter Parker wearing glasses, and it says, if, if the metal band's guitar player looks like this, you're going to die in that fucking bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he epitomizes that spirit without yeah. looking like that. He just looks like, you know, like a real professional kind of dude. But um, he, um, like for Killer Instinct, he actually had, and this is part of the Killer Instinct uh, documentary that I saw a bit, I don't. I can't remember if that's actually done by Noclip. It might be somebody else. There's a part of the theme that gets played for um, not Kilgore, uh, but Spinals uh, theme. Oh, okay. It gets it gets played through a flute, and it's a special uh, Tibetan bone flute that uh, this musician <laughs> that's, has. That's, it's, it's carved out of like a human femur, um, and so of course that would fit for Spinal. You know, 
And yeah, obviously. Yeah. Giant pirate skeleton. <laughs> so in any case, even him talking about the music portion of of um, of Doom is great. And then everybody's interview is great. And you really get a view into they originally started with a different conception of the game where it was going to be um, a little more cinematic and a little bit like big. But then they got to a certain point where they were like, well, this actually doesn't really, this feels great. Uh, you know, this is really cool and we like what's developed here, but it doesn't really feel like a Doom game. And so they scrapped that direction and they decided to just go back to like, okay, what really makes like a Doom game? And it's like, okay, you know, you're a badass, you know, you're there to like kill demons and like just feel really, you know, fucking cool. And so that's what you feel like playing the, the Doom 2016 game. Um, cause you just like, you hop in, uh, some character starts giving you exposition, you know, you just like move the screen out of the way and then you just start with like a gun, you know, and uh, soon you get the shotgun and it's just like, you're just moving through. It's a video game, you yeah. know? Um, but it has some more like narrative trappings, but it never lets those get in the way of like, oh, this is a video game. We're here to play a video game. Um, which is what I liked about it, to be honest. Like, it, yeah. it, like there's no pretension of like we're making high art with this. It's like, yeah. no, you want to, you want to fucking murder these demons yeah. <laughs> coming through this door at you. Yeah, you're and the doom cool slayer. While you do yeah. it, <laughs> yeah, you want to be a badass. You know, you're yeah. the doom slayer, so you want to feel like a badass. And um, the doom slayer is just like just does. You know, he doesn't have any qualms about his motivations. Right. Like he knows what he wants to do. You know, people say, oh, you can't do this. But if that's what he wants to do, he's just going to go ahead and do it. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's great. So playing Doom Eternal, um, there's there's a bit more difficulty available, I think. Just because to really maximize the game experience, if you're playing, especially if you're playing on a higher difficulty, yeah. you have to understand, like, contextually, like, what weapons work for specific enemies. Sure. Or even what kinds of approaches. Because with Doom, you could have like the super shotgun. Um, You could spruce it up to where it has less uh, reload time. And you could pretty much take out everybody with like the super shotgun from like close range. Other than like maybe the bosses. You'd have to like hit them so they have hit stun and then you can go in. But it's mechanically, you don't have to be really nuanced with it. Whereas um, in Doom Eternal, um, you know, as soon as I say this, there's going to be people that are fans and really vehemently not fans. There's a there's a marauder enemy, yeah. and the marauder is great because he's just like you. Um, he has a super shotgun or a shotgun, um, and if you get way way too close, he's going to hit you with a shotgun. But if you get too far away, he's going to hit you with these projectiles that like track. Um, oh, and okay. He can dash like a thing that you get in Doom Eternal is the ability to do these these super dashes. Right. Um, and they're basically like really fast strafe dashes. He can do that too. Okay. Um, and he has a shield. And if you hit, like if you just shoot like an idiot, run onto his shield when he has it out, yeah. he's going to send out this like ghost dog that comes <laughs> out and then you got to shoot the ghost dog. And he's very often not by himself. Like he's not the only enemy that's there, but he's like a you. Um, and so you have to play, you know, intelligently against him. You can't just like go up right up on him and try to shoot him with a super shotgun. 
You know, right. you, you have to, uh, you know, one, one tactic is to get really far away from him, dodges projectiles, you know, um, and then he'll charge at you. And then when he's charging, you hit him out of that into a hit stun, and then you can hit him again, you know, once or twice. Sure. Um, but you can't just like go right up to him and just like hit him with the super shotgun, you know, or you can <laughs> throw, um, you know, um, the rocket launcher and you can hit it behind him. Uh, so just like shoot it past his shield or shoot it past his body. So it blows up behind him and then he gets a little bit of stun. And we, so you have to be a little more, you know, creative uh, with it. Um, so he just has more mobility than a lot of the other other uh, enemies. And so if you just um, want to play it on super hard difficulty or a higher difficulty, but you don't want to really like adapt your play style and air quoting that, yeah. to that enemy then yeah you're going to find them a little bit more frustrating sure but also there's a lot more platforming in doom eternal i've um, heard i haven't played it yet but i've heard it it kind of does the more platformy thing that like doom doom 2 added some verticality to yeah so yeah. it's it's an element of it but it's not like you're um it's not like you're trying to shoot enemies you know really while you're trying to platform for the oh, most okay. part yeah it's not like you're like jumping from one thing to the other and like shooting fireballs at enemies. Um, you can though, cause there's like a slow-mo. So in, in a lot of the arenas, they have like these little monkey bar things that you can swing and swoop up. So then you could point your visor down, you know, or your scope, um, shoot an enemy that's underneath you, use the slow-mo and do that. So you can shoot them a bunch of times. So you can have fun with it. Um, there is a lot of it, uh, but I mean, you're still primarily killing demons, so hmm. it doesn't turn into like Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze or anything. You know, <laughs> it's not like that. It's it's not like where the difficulty is embedded in the platforming. Yeah. Because um, let me tell you, that game is amazing. Tropical Freeze to get off. Uh, another tangent, but um, <laughs> that was the one on Wii U, or was that on Wii? Is I think there was a Wii game. Um, it was one of the first initial ones. And then yeah. I think Tropical Freeze is the sequel to the one that started on the Wii. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I remember that. That one was really difficult. Yeah, it is. It is. It yeah. for sure is. Um, it's definitely not a game for kids. <laughs> just no. from a difficulty level. I, I just can't. <laughs> you get to the the owl section. There's an owl boss in that yeah. to, go, to go even further. Tangent. Um, there's an owl boss in that. And that's... That is legit one of the most difficult platforming sections that I've played in a game in recent memory. Now, I'm not the kind of person that plays like Super Meat Boy on like super hard, you know, difficult yeah. or anything like that. Right. Um, but uh, that owl section, wow. Because it, it has stages. Like you think you're done, then there's second stage. And I think there's a third stage on beating that one too. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've seen videos of it. I never got to that point. Like it's, it was one of those games that I gave up in frustration, which is like, you know what? This is, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get good for that game. Like yeah. <laughs> you gotta get good. And Hannah's the same way too. If she's, if she has to, you know, feel too frustrated, then, um, you know, uh, then that'll happen. But yeah, you got to get good scrub in order to play that. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, that took quite a few tries to get past that out boss. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Doom Eternal is fun. I haven't beaten that one yet, but um, so far uh, having a good time with that. 
Do you have um, the sword? Uh, the sword you get late game. Well, oh, okay. At least mid mid late. So don't have that yet. Oh, you don't have it. Okay, gotcha. No. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask how how the uh, the physicality of it felt because. I've seen mixed stuff where some people are like, yeah, this is awesome. And some people are like, yeah, it feels kind of floaty. <laughs> no, people like to bitch. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> the internet. Like, people love to bitch. Now, the thing <laughs> is, what I can see, though, in, in defense of that, is that Doom 2016 is so crystallized in, like, exactly what it wants to be. Um, and so, so really perfect in what it is. Right. Like... It's very linear. I mean, there is some exploration where you're like trying to get like hidden stuff and stuff like that. Sure. But it's very linear in design. Um, you're staying planted on the ground mostly. You're shooting up. So like it's it's welcoming to really everyone, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas Doom Eternal, I think, wants to build upon the experience of Doom 2016, and it doesn't do it. I don't. I don't think it does it to the detriment of the game. But it's it's a different game because they wanted to build on it. So if you don't like um, the platforming stuff, which is just it leads to cooler things because you can like swoop up in the air and like slow mo and then like switch weapons while you're slow moing and like scope and snipe something and you just have so many more power ups available to you. Mm. But not just power ups, but like different weapons and utilities. Like you can ice enemies. Um, you have like, um, a flamethrower thing on your shoulder that you can use to like turn enemies on fire. And then if you hit them and kill them when they're on fire, they give you more shield. So there's just so many different mechanics that update like how mobile you can be, um, how many different ways you can optimize what you do. So if you're just like love shooty shooty with shotgun and you have all these mechanics, then that's going to be, it's going to be different because you're going to have to like learn that, you know? Um, you could play the game probably at a lower difficulty. Uh, and I think that's how I played Doom 2016, like the first time I played that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really much of like a shooter player or anything like that. Me um, neither. Like I, I think I played the the setting that's above the like, the like baby one what what is mm-hmm. it is like like hurt me more I yeah think. hurt me plenty yeah yeah, yeah hurt mm-hmm. me plenty yeah yeah and so um you know anything could... past that is just impossible like my reflexes <laughs> are just not quick enough to to, to yeah it's, it's, it a, it's a reflex thing and like um it's optimizing um like mechanic wise so it depends on you know do you want to relax and play or do you find like a like a challenging game of chess like relaxing like is that your kind of thing yeah so like on the higher levels i'd say if you're like you like you know if you really really like fighting games like in a mechanical like kind of kind of way um and optimizing that then the higher difficulties you know probably an approach um for you so i thought it scaled well you know either way and um so it's a good game um, I know it was divisive, but not not divisive in a you know it didn't sell a ton and yeah. didn't do well and doesn't have tons of fans. You know, it's not like Fallout seventy six or something like that, <laughs> or um, you know, No Man's Sky when it initially came out and all that. Um, yeah, yeah. Other than that, uh, 
trying to get into playing keyboard a little bit and looking up renting a home because need more space. So yeah, um, that's pretty much all I'm doing. Okay. Gotcha. Well, um, yeah, I, I have, uh, two things, one of which shouldn't take too long, um, because I didn't finish it. Um, which man this episode is gonna get so many bad reviews um so i started and did not finish uh horizon zero dawn oh the Um, first one yeah the first one i i had never played it before but Uh it it kept making these like best of year lists right Uh it's it's an interesting new property i Uh it's it's um it's enticing to play i I won't say it's not fun to play Mm. um it's so for for me it it um it's kind of like a when i say bad mashup i don't mean that the game is bad itself it takes the things that i dislike about dark souls type games and mm-hmm. mashes it with things that I dislike about Assassin's Creed games. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Because it's an open world game. Yeah. You have very specific ways of taking out enemies. And I feel like the game does a lot to narratively build you up and make you feel like you are um, capable of facing the threats and taking them down however you want. Mm-hmm. ultimately there's like one or two ways to take out each thing if you try anything else it just will not work oh yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. it's it's so it's it's not quite as open and not quite as um uh non-linear as i feel like it was marketed as if that mm-hmm. makes sense um the world is big though the world is gorgeous um and i mean i'll, I'll probably if if there's a discount on the second one and I ever manage to get my hands on a PS five, mm-hmm. <laughs> check it out um, to see if maybe some of these things were, were tweaked. Yeah. Um, my wife is playing it. Um, the, uh, the sequel, I will say, yeah, the, the enemies have specific like weak points Yeah, and you have to either like, you got to scan them to like yeah. learn what they are. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to like hit them. Um, and they're challenging if you, and I'd say on the flip side to get off or to to kick off from your metaphor, like for Assassin's Creed, uh, you could just you could just grind to where you're just OP, and then just take out. You could just hit an enemy with whatever you want to hit them with. Yeah, exactly. But you can't really grind from what I've seen. To where you're just OP, to where like you can just run up on this creature and just start hitting it, like oh, yeah, you don't have yeah. you don't have enough health. Uh, no. You know, it takes a second to uh, regenerate your health, so you have to be um, very strategic in how you approach. But ultimately, um, these, <laughs> I think it 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 really um, drills home the fact that you are a human made of soft fleshy bits yes and you're (laughs) fighting against these uh mechanized creatures that are hard robot bits with metal and steel Mm -hmm. and they hit you the big ones they're going to take nearly all your health or they're going to take half of it and so like if you get in a bad situation like a bad corner 
um, or if there's multiples of like these raptor things or the these like fire boar creatures um, or if you're if you have two like fire boar creatures there and then one flying one and uh, you don't maybe take out the flying one first and like lead it away from the other ones if you just try to come in and just like hit them and like take them out it's not going to happen because you're a soft fleshy creature mm-hmm. um so even my wife playing the game uh, will get into situations where it's like ah you know she died or etc or whatever because yeah. like you gotta you gotta approach it you know a particular way yeah. um yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh like i said it it um it's still like it's still kind of an open world like you have to do certain things to unlock pieces of the world kind of like in a grand theft auto game right yes it's not like a skyrim or like a fallout yeah right yeah Yeah. and and um yeah i I feel like granted i didn't follow the production of this game from start to finish um which actually i think there's a great no clip documentary on that too oh i'll have to check that out (laughs) because yeah like good so good well, yeah. like, I just remember all of the, like, gaming mags talking about how it was, like, um, you know, a successor to, to Assassin's Creed, and it's, you know, a great open world game, and, like, I don't know, I don't think it's very open world, and I, I think it's more akin to a, like, it's a, it's Dark Souls that's a little bit more um, swingy, right, um, that's set in the daylight, yeah (laughs) yeah now Um, now i wouldn't say from playing dark souls that it's as hard but yes you have yeah you have to be more strategic with your action which i'd say is not really the case with assassin's creed uh even (laughs) even some of the older games because my wife has played those from like two up until the last iteration the valhalla one oh you can just you can just grind and you could either be uh, uh drunk or buzzed off your brain, or just want to mindlessly kill some things by pressing <laughs> one button. That's your game, boy. Exactly. Like, you know, and I think they really homogenize it that way. Whereas I think yeah. Horizon Zero Dawn is more like singer player narrative. So yeah. it's a, it's more open than say um, uh, God of War, the last God of War. It's more open than that. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Um, but it's still more single single player narrative where the narrative plays a really strong part, which I'd say God of War also has that. Um, but also games like, uh, you know, Nathan Drake, uh, Last of Us, etc. Like where yeah. the narrative's driving you forward. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, I mean, I've... I, I think it's been well established and in, in both our, our, our uh, on-mic and, and uh, off-mic discussions... I I'm not a huge fan of that style of game. I don't think you're. I don't know um, exactly why you love narratives. I but do. I, 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 I think I think when you're you're not you like being more in the driver's seat of a narrative. Yeah. Rather than being like taken along a narrative, like a single player narrative is like yeah. You know, it's less. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just less engaging for you because you like you like being a DM. You know. Yeah. You like. Yeah going through different stories you like really quirky or at least interesting approaches to a narrative right so even if it's like really well done uh which you can kind of see that from like a a craft perspective you know it's more like um the difference between like uh 
you know, someone who wants to uh, create their own kind of experience or be more involved. Yeah. And someone who's like, okay, uh, I'm in the passenger seat. Like, show me, show me the ride, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, like, and that, that's my, uh, my issue with this and those other games is that, you know, the, um, they're, they're gorgeous. They're, they're well put together. Um, because the, because of the medium, I think the story becomes at a certain point, pretty predictable because we've seen a lot of the stories in different, in either sci-fi short stories in the case of, of, um, horizon like it i can't remember the name of it it reminds me a lot of a short story by f paul wilson Mm -hmm. (laughs) right uh and then you know last of us and and uncharted all all of those like just recycle similar similar tropes Mm -hmm. um and because it's a video game it kind of has to be broadly and shallowly written so mm-hmm. so that you know the 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 person playing it can kind of follow and keep up with it i guess mm-hmm. um which isn't a good or a bad thing it's just not you know my cup of tea <laughs> so tell, tell me again why you like dungeons and dragons movie <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is the conflict with being zach's friend is that he has these really well nuanced opinions and like <laughs> You, really see bad where, taste. <laughs> you see you see where they're coming from from his perspective and you're like oh yeah i totally get that i totally get what you're saying and he's like blah 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 this references this and you know it's like a similar plot thing on this and then he's like but man i just love this piece of predictable garbage <laughs> <laughs> and it's like where, where where does that fit is it like, it, does he compartmentalize or is it just I it's, it's a broad well, range it's, I mean, part of it, I've, I've had this, like, we, we've talked about this before. I, I largely mm-hmm. think that, and I say this as someone who has been a freelance uh, writer, uh, reviewing uh, music and, and movies, and someone who cares very deeply about media and the way it's portrayed, um, mm-hmm. is that it, criticism largely is bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't account for taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> admittedly um and i feel like nine times out of ten if you're reading something um especially well especially now i would say that that it's been going this way for the past like 20 years ish mm-hmm. is if a critic is saying this game is great it's because they are or, or this piece of media whatever it is is great is uh either maintaining a relationship with whatever originator of that content is mm-hmm. um or it is i like this that means it's good and just because you like it doesn't mean it's good <laughs> yeah know? and just because it's bad doesn't mean you don't like it it's, you know yeah you know what i think i can kind of relate it to if for other people who have struggled with uh with a friend who <laughs> expresses these opinions i think it's because for me that kind of like okay lead me along the way uh single player narrative experience um i really like those because um even if it's something i've seen before or i've seen like a conceit with like this techno you know uh, world apocalypse where you know, these creatures, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they've been doing stuff like that for, you know, decades. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not not in this way, 
not in this like high production value in a game experience style. I'd argue not even in this media. Like yeah. usually you see that in like like late seventies, early eighties, like yeah, exactly. movies. Yeah, and yeah. so um, you know, uh, I have I have a really high tolerance. I have a really high capacity for um, what is it called? Uh, there's a word for it, uh, but I'm just going to use a. A descriptive two words for it just narrative buy-in yeah. where um my buy-in for like a narrative and there's there's another there's a better word for this that's actually uh what i mean um narrative buy-in conceit but it's for um story conceits you know i, I guess you could use yeah. that there's another word that's better but we'll just go with that um I have a really high buy-in for story conceits um, where I'm just like along for the ride and et cetera. So things like continuity changes, I could give a shit. Um, Things like uh, characters changing um, in a way that isn't believable, I could give a shit about that too. Now, the, the caveat for that is if it's not entertaining. If it's entertaining, (laughs) I'm all in for it. If it's not entertaining, then yeah why, yeah why bother why, why bother but the stuff where it's like uh you have um you know spy movies or um um horror movies mm-hmm. or um action movies or superhero movies um where you have these story conceits and um where you're like oh that doesn't make sense or why would that character do that um, is it entertaining? That's the only thing I really care about. Yeah. Um, but if it's not entertaining, then I don't, at least for me, for my, my value in entertainment, then I don't really yeah. want to watch it, you know, et cetera. So, Oh, exactly. Like, I mean, the, <laughs> oh, wait, wait. so the metaphor I was going to use yeah. to end it is that you can have like a, a chocolate bar, like a chocolate ice cream bar, right? You can have a really, really high-end truffle ice cream bar. Give it to Zach or someone else. They're okay. It's not their fave, right? Yeah. It's good. I can see why it's really good. You know, this chocolate is like imported from Belgium and it's delicious and all that. Um, or you could have, uh, you know, just like a fudge bar that you get off of an ice cream truck. And it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I give the fudge bar to Zach and I have a fudge bar. And it's great. So you can have something that's like um, really, really high-end crafted experience. And it's not a one-to-one comparison. So like a Horizon Zero Dawn, a Last of Us, etc. Yeah. You understand the craft and stuff that's into it. Yeah. You have it in your mouth, your flavor, ah, not really your thing. I give you this like lukewarm fudge bar that's kind of melting. Oh, that's, that's his Dungeons Dragons movie. Zach loves it. You know, mm-hmm. so these things are crafted, <laughs> maybe the same, you know, the same kind of materials, but the love uh, of it is different. You know, I have chocolate bars that I don't really like. You know, I don't like fudge, you know, like little fudges. Ugh, gross. Too gummy, too gooey. Um, other pieces of chocolate, delicious, lovely. Yeah. You know, so you can have something that seems to be the same, is even in the same genre. And yeah. so, but it, the component ingredients lead to a different pleasure reaction. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, that's that's larger. I, I, I guess you could forecast where I was going with this is that like, you know, that I can see that this is an appealing game to people that like this type of, of game. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I, I kind of hit a point with this one and just like I did with The Last of Us, where it's like, I think the story's going here. I look up the last paragraph of the Wikipedia plot entry and go, okay, I don't need to play the game. Like, I don't need to finish it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, that's not saying I don't appreciate predictable plots, obviously, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I only have so much time to devote to video games. And so <laughs> I would mm-hmm. rather move on to another game that might, might hold more interest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I'm more than happy to check out the, the sequel, um, if I again ever get my hands on a PlayStation Five, <laughs> yeah, I think if you just if you walk by a couple of neighbors' windows and you see one in there, yeah. I think your best chance is to just open said window in some exactly. way and take it. Yeah, just <laughs> grab it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the easiest way you're going to get one. I think the uh, well, and the uh, the other thing that I did, I think thematically appropriate, is that my wife and I watched through the uh, the Legend of Vox Machina on uh, uh, Amazon Prime. And that show is awesome, and I can't wait for the sequel, uh, sequel season. Um, the show's definitely I, better, definitely better than I thought it was going to be. Um, me too. Like I, I kind of was just. Well, first off, I was kind of irritated that they went to Kickstarter for it because I feel like all of the people in Critical Role have way more industry connections to get something like this pitched and mm-hmm. made. Um, so I feel a little bit bad for the people that kickstarted thinking, Oh yeah. Like this is the only way you'll get the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I know if I were a Kickstarter backer, I would be like, okay, well, where's the tier for this being like on a physical release mm-hmm. for us? Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. now it's just, it's, it's Amazon's property. Like they've green lit, I think a second and even third season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that didn't attract me enough to keep from watching it. Like I still, enjoyed it um yeah. i have to say those episodes i've had to stop listening to the episodes because they come out every week and because it's an actual play podcast they're very well done each episode is like four and a half hours wow and i can't do that every week <laughs> <laughs> you know um but yeah no i i um they they shoved enough of what i remember from the first campaign uh, into it um it's only ever going to focus on this first campaign unless they change the name the name of the uh, show um mm-hmm. yeah and, i found uh, it yeah i found it interesting that um initially i thought the uh characters and storyline were going to be less in earnest you yeah. know they were going to be more um you know just kind of tongue-in-cheek goofy mm-hmm. which which can be great done well i think you know you see that with like a cast of characters and like a Futurama because yeah. even Futurama, like it's goofy, you know, but there's still like an emotional backing to a lot of the stories or there's something that's being communicated within a set of episodes. Um, I think sometimes when you're just too committed to the gag, then it's like, okay, this is kind of funny. Um, but why am I watching like this cast of characters? Like, are they engaging? Yeah. Like, is there a relationship here? Like what's, what's the buy-in um, for wanting to continue the story as opposed to like any number of other things that are, 
that may have entertaining characters or, uh, you know, can bring you that kind of pleasure. There's a reason that people watch The Office like ad nauseum. Yeah. Um, because one, there's familiarity, there's humor, but there's also like emotional buy into the characters in the environment. Oh, sure. Um, so the, the first episode I was kind of rolling my eyes. So I was like, oh, okay, all right. Everybody's kind of silly and okay, that's great. You know, that first, <laughs> I, I will say that first episode, I was like, I was sitting there and I'm like, my wife is either going to want to stop watching this or keep watching this. And I, <laughs> Got I can't gauge which right now. Ultimately, yeah. we finished watching it, but yeah, mm-hmm. it um, yeah that that first episode I will say is very cringy because I feel like they, it was probably the first written and recorded, um, and so I feel like they were really leaning into the like how fucking gross and weird can we be, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And then they kind of had to hit the more mainstream, like, yeah, I've heard people talk about Dungeons and Dragons type audience. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, you know, it evens out, I would say, give it to the second episode. And if you really yeah. don't like it after the second one, just stop. Like, you're not, it's not going to get better for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, we watched more than one episode and I think I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I see what they're doing here. And yeah. Yeah. These yeah, characters it's... do care about things. I guess I get exhaustion when, when a cast of characters is just a little too, I don't, I want to, I don't want to say too edgy for their own good, but they're just yeah. um, a little. If they're too nihilistic as a group, yeah. then if they don't care about things, right, then why should I care? You know, <laughs> exactly. And like they, they play with that a lot in the first episode, where they're just mm-hmm. like. Yeah, we don't care about anything. Mm-hmm. We're just in this for the gold or whatnot. And it's like, well, I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not yeah. true. You are not a band of murder hobos. Like, yeah, yeah. you guys have these these well thought out backstories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they start going into that, and then you have like the village and yeah. relations made there, and then subsequent actions involved in that. And it's like, oh, okay, so they do care about stuff. All right, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say. Kind of grow on me. I haven't finished it, but I can see the draw. It's fun. Yeah, they um they cover the the, the this first season covers a um I want to say it's a really really long arc in the podcast, mm-hmm. but uh, or the the Twitch channel, which, whichever people watch of that. But like they managed to just distill it or distill it down into like I, I think like eight episodes or so, and it's like okay, yeah, this is. That's that's probably more than enough coverage that this needed. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I guess with that, uh, I I do recommend uh, Legend of Vox Machina. If I hate to say it, if you like Rick and Morty type stuff, if you um, like the first couple seasons of Rick and Morty, yeah, it gets gets a little gets a little wacky later on. But there's plenty of fan talk about that. Yeah, we'll go there. Yeah but uh yeah so we'll we'll start with the uh the discussion of the dungeons and dragons film from 2000 oh, wait, wait what only other oh. thing oh sure sure yeah. Barry season three came out that first two seasons of that show have been fantastic oh um, gotcha they're also each episode's like half an hour ish long that show is like um it's, uh, it's like tv watching crack um I've heard, I've heard really good things about it's, it. There's a lot of dark humor. 
but not even really like dark humor. It's like the the tone. If you think of like Breaking Bad with some of the more comedic episodes, yeah. where it was like a dark. I guess you could say dark comedy, um, where like circumstances arise to like, oh, that's really terrible, but it's also kind of funny the way these circumstances played out. Um, you get a lot of that in uh, Barry. Bill Hader is phenomenal um, in that even the um, supposed to be, and I, I talked to my wife about this a lot because I feel like not to, um, uh, to, you know, any kind of horn or anything like that, but the uh, way female characters are, are often written in like super popular media, um, you know, portrays them as like, you know, impinging upon the male protagonist or complicating their life or making dumb decisions and et cetera. And so um, the female uh, protagonist who's kind of like a, sort of a girlfriend for Barry, once phenomenal actress. Um, and two, uh, she's very invested in like her portrayal of the world and how she wants to interact with things. Like she's an up and coming actress yeah. in, you know, LA area. Um, but she has just done so well and like, she's so charismatic and I, I just, I get where she's coming from as like a character. Whereas I feel like, um, to contrast with, uh, Breaking Bad, Walter White's wife, Sky, I feel Skyler. like is, yeah. Skyler is written in a way where like, oh, you're like, oh, she's just getting in his way. You know, she's just making life hard for Walter. Um, now on a second rewatch when you realize that all along like spoilers Walter White's choices and etc we're just going to screw and destroy everything yeah. you understand more where Skyler's coming from um as just like a viewer you know from a visceral sense uh, because you see how everything's going to ultimately end but she still comes across as like really annoying and like grating um even though the yeah. the late the actress who plays her is great and like really commits to the role. I feel like a lot of times you get the male protagonist and then the female protagonist just makes life harder, you know, for him. Um, whereas in Barry, uh, there is, there could be the potential for that, but you just, you get where she's coming from. Um, yeah. There's not that same kind of conflict. And she plays a character that could be conveyed as being annoying, but it's just likable, you know, cause he's just, I don't know, maybe she's just done excellently as far as an actress role. Um, I feel like that shows how the process of writing plot and characters has developed for for TV as well. Uh -huh. Because that that whole like Skylar's always busting Walter's balls type uh -huh. type thing. Like you you see that in in Breaking Bad and you see it in um Walking Dead with Lori and Rick, right? Uh-huh. And like I mean, granted, in Walking Dead, it's so much worse because there's there's literally an episode in the prison season where uh -huh. she privately has a conversation with someone and expresses whatever it is that Rick wants to do, uh -huh. and then after commercial break, and then very next scene, uh -huh. <laughs> she is voicing the exact opposite opinion just because Rick is the only other character she's interacting with. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you see that a lot in Breaking Bad where it's just like, oh, well, we've got to throw up a roadblock. We'll just give it to this character and use yeah. this character as a prop. And it's like, yeah. well, is 
I feel like it's weird that you're only doing this one with the female characters, but two. <laughs> yeah. Maybe don't write yourself into a corner like that. I, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You have the same thing with Skylar's sister. Um, it was kind of written as a roadblock yeah. in a lot of situations for Hank, you know, in yeah. the show. Um, yeah, well, and and the funny thing specifically about Breaking Bad, not to jump off onto a tangent. Also, again, Breaking but, Bad is a great um, show. We're just talking about one kind of narrative aspect of it. Yeah, yeah like and and um, I, I remember there being a really bad problem specifically with Banking, Breaking Bad about, um, if I recall right, fans writing in threats and stuff to Anna Gunn. Who, who placed Skylar and it's like yeah. do you, you realize that she's reading things that other people like wrote right like yeah. Vince Gilligan in his writer's room determined mm-hmm. the way she's acting right now yes. this is this is all fake right yeah. <laughs> you realize that she is not this person in real life I know exactly <laughs> this is not a documentary <laughs> yeah. um, oh so so funny sad really yeah <laughs> mostly, mostly sad it's sad because yeah. someone else has to live through that uh and then the stupidity is just i don't know oh it's it's is what i find funny it's yeah. it's yeah it's so weird um i'm sure there's a mental illness component there as well but probably yeah there probably is so uh <laughs> speaking of mental illnesses uh let's um Talk about Dungeons and Dragons. So um, another thing I wanted to bring up before we get to Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> the show Barry also has another character called Noho Frank, who is a gem. Um, he That actor suffers from, I think, an immune immune disorder, immune response. Forgive me for not knowing the exact details. But he doesn't have any hair on his head due to like a, a condition or a syndrome or something. Um, so he's called Noho Frank is the character's name. Noho Frank. Yeah, Noho Frank. And um, he also doesn't have eyebrows due to this. Um, oh, alopecia? This yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a really severe form of it for him. Um, uh, that character's a gem. Fantastic. Love, lovely. Um, just lovely. It's a lovely show. Definitely watch. Mm. The first two seasons have been great. And... Also, better call nothing Saul. but good things about that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's also it's at the point where the episode sizes are just long enough to get through a story arc, you know, and they keep things moving. Like the show just keeps on moving. Um, and Better Call Saul, my wife and I have been watching that as well. Oh, and okay. I, I think that show may have built upon maybe what Vince Gilligan and his writer crew learned from Breaking Bad. Hmm. Um, it's also more interesting, I think, initially, because trying to rewatch Breaking Bad is like, it's a slow build to see where this character is going. Um, yeah. And this character starts as someone who is disempowered, you know, who, or who feels disempowered, and then decides he's going to uh, be empowered but really almost in like a, a, a tyrannical way, ultimately, but also someone who um, gets their autonomy and expresses their wishes, but then also expresses that, oh, these are the things that are really important to me, family, et cetera. 
When in reality, if those things were really, really important, if they were of prime importance, there's multiple times in the arc of that show where Walter could have just gotten away, you know, backed away from what he was doing. Or like he had a win, he could have just walked away to the with a win. But um, that desire for growth and empire, et cetera, was, was really what was most important to him. Not that his family wasn't, you know, something he valued. Whereas with Better Call Saul, you have a character who largely makes autonomous decisions, uh, has a relationship with his brother where, you know, he, you know, kowtows to him and his desires and stuff. But it's someone who's already, you can see that they have autonomy, that they're more empowered. So you're watching them uh, grow and see where they eventually end up, you know, in the Breaking Bad universe. So um, it shows... uh, it, I think it easier buy-in. Um, I remember really liking the first season when it came out, but I haven't mm-hmm. done it past there. I, I do love Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. I think my wife and I watched like season, episode nine of the first season was the first one we saw when it came out. Yeah, and you know we obviously missed like nine episodes or eight episodes before that, so we're like, oh, I don't get it. What's the draw here? Um, it wasn't kind of where it is now where you could just go back, you know, in uh in your Netflix episodes and just like grab, you know, what the first one was. Yeah. So it's an interesting study in a character devolving in some ways as they're mm-hmm. changing into the person that you know later. Uh-huh. Like where he starts as Jimmy and becomes Saul. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yes, uh, I guess you know it's time to rip the bandaid off. Okay, <laughs> so uh, the year is two thousand. Um, I will say that this is probably the worst movie we will review in terms of critical acclaim. Um, yeah, this, this this movie came uh, not just critical acclaim, but anything close to this, I'm going to need veto power beforehand <laughs> or a lengthy conversation. This about, came, about why this movie came out of left field uh <laughs> and you know i've had a tough week and it was just a tough slog but i made it through I'm a survivor <laughs> thank you <laughs> Anyways, so so um you, this was not a cheap movie for them to make this was you know it had a 45 million dollar budget um it made back 34 million um surprisingly uh Right, by critical acclaim um, being the lowest on this one, we've covered some bad movies before, usually at my request. Um, Suicide Squad and Warcraft both are in the high 20s. Uh, this movie's Rotten Tomatoes is 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the Metacritic is 14, which Metacritic is an aggregate. So it's that that is about what people at the time were saying. Um and then cinema score was C plus. Now, I went to see this with <laughs> the uh, people that I played D and D with, um, and because we could not drive yet, my dad tagged along, and my dad was like, "This is probably the worst movie I've ever seen." <laughs> as we were leaving, like, um, no one else in my player group really liked this, so. I guess I guess we'll we'll start with the the background of this movie. This has a very um, uh, 
troubled history. Uh, and the, the, there's a reason why it turned out the way it did. Um, to start at the, the, the very beginning, um, and just to kind of quickly cover the development of D&D, um, I'm sure... If you go to Wikipedia, you can link hop. Um, this is compiled from a lot of reading on the history of how, how certain games were made. Uh, basically, the the spans of time uh, are that, you know, the original D&D uh, game came out in 74. Uh, it was published like a like a, a three volume box set. Right. Um, only had three classes. There's a fighter, magic user, cleric. Then, in which this is an interesting note, I think that so first edition, the, the actual full first edition was advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? Uh, it fine tuned everything, became kind of its own game um, in this regard. Uh, but the order of books that they published was the Monster Manual in '77, the Player's Handbook in '78, and the Dungeon Master's Guide in '79. So really, 1979 was the first time you would be able to play it fully um and there's a there's an interesting um legal fight that gygax and arneson had over this being advanced dungeons and dragons it was a way of gygax cutting arneson out from creating it and he lost that what that lawsuit um so i bring up the first edition because this uh the world of this movie uh, has its roots in uh, Mistara, which is kind of the combined world of the the basic set of D&D. D&D um, basic is a different rule system than advanced D&D. So you effectively have a, a company putting out two different versions of the same game that are drastically different. Um and you know basic set they they it's kind of like the essentials kit that they put out now it, it it was really more for um your beginning players uh it released uh let's see how long was the basic set released for uh so yeah like the first version came out in 77 and the last one that went out was in 94 so like pretty much the entire span of the TSR run of D&D um, Gygax basically got kicked out of the company he created sometime in the late 80s. Um, prior to that, like, there, there's there's a lot of reasons why they would kick him out. One of them is that in the early 80s, he started uh, TSR Entertainment in uh, California and allegedly... Um, it was just party central where he would like, he convinced someone to make the D and D cartoon, which is, I have great nostalgia for. I like it's of its time. It's, it's no different than any other Saturday morning cartoon. Um, but this is also before the satanic panic comes out. Um, so by 84, 85, um, they have to shutter TSR West basically. And he has to come back to Milwaukee. Um, but, over the course of him trying to sell the rights to a D&D movie, he keeps getting passed over and passed over and passed over. Um, the the uh, studio was also... Their uh, TSR itself was also notoriously litigious. So 
if things were not done exactly a certain way, they would sue whatever production company was, was working on it or whatever animation crew was working on it. And it it's a giant headache, right? Um, fast forward to 1990. Um, the, the guy who ended up directing this movie is a guy named Courtney Solomon. Um, he, at this point, they have shuttered uh, TSR uh, West but he basically just um, contacted TSR in Milwaukee or uh, uh, Wisconsin, rather, um, and lied his way into a meeting via just a phone call because you could do that in 1990. <laughs> Over the course of, of like 18 months, um, he finally set up a negotiations meeting um, and TSR gave him the rights to make a movie because he promised them a uh absurdly high upfront royalty rate which is not disclosed but um pretty much anyone familiar with it has said yes this is like double or triple what most licensors get <laughs> um uh he then writes a 30 page uh, proposal and spent three months of daily multi-hour brokering with the company right to try and <laughs> to try and get all of the um the 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 right use of creatures down and i'm i'm assuming that a lot of the royalty rate is because D D had a lot of trademarks over like the beholder and things like that um so this is late 91 um he he goes traveling abroad uh and raise of which I've never been able to track down how he was affording to do this because he promised them a huge amount of money up front Right. Like I'm assuming that something illicit is involved at this point, because he also, like I said, spends 18 months traveling around allegedly funding for this movie. Oh, no, no, no. Like he <laughs> he does travel around to try and find funding. His his first draft of the screenplay. Oh, I, I meant the illicit bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. It has to be like it has to be. Allegedly. There's, no, there's allegedly it has to be. Yes. <laughs> Zach says, oh, these folks very litigious. Oh, listen. <laughs> oh, uh, TSR is not a company anymore. Oh, okay. They are. They have long been dissolved by uh, by Hasbro. <laughs> um, the the uh, yeah. So he he sells the first draft of the screenplay and gets an in, uh, initial investment from a guy named Alan Zeman in Hong Kong, uh, and so they form Sweet Pea Entertainment uh, to fund the film and then sell it to another package of investors. Right. Um. They originally had plans, and again, this is in 91, they had plans for a $100 million budget uh, wow. with actual directors. Like, they had a short list of uh, Coppola, Cameron, uh, Rennie Harlan, and Stan Winston. They all actually had their hat in the ring to direct it, and then one by one dropped out because other projects were coming up, things like that. Um you know, the, the script itself gets positive coverage in movie line, which was a, a magazine at the time, like a trade magazine at the time. 1995 rolls around, uh, premiere announces that the project is moving forward with Stan Winston, who had just won his Oscar for Jurassic park. So this is a pretty big name guy, right? Like I, I, yeah. I don't know if Stan Winston had directed anything at this point. Um, but I mean, you have an Oscar winning director for this bullshit D and D movie, right? Um, 
they revealed the plot details back in 95. It's, you know, a rogue with a uh, magical dragon controlling device, uh, creatures from the game, and then there's a heavy effects final battle, right? Uh, oh, wow. The, it's heavy, all right. <laughs> it's, it, it went from $100 million in 91 to 45 in 2000. Um, so studios and directors apparently loved the screenplay, loved the storyboards, uh, but inevitably they would drop financing due to it, it being a fantasy film. And fantasy films at this point in time were notoriously bad films. Um, you know, Willow came out in 88. Crawl was 83. Dragonheart was in 96. <laughs> <laughs> um they had also uh paid up front for justin Wayland to be in this he plays uh ridley in in the film um him not being famous enough didn't really help right um so in 96 solomon and the studios start butting heads with tsr um because tsr was a shitty i know a lot of people have love for tsr they were overly litigious greedy and mismanaged <laughs> and they one like their corporate bio shows all of that like they they um even though they had already received their upfront royalties they they should have had no say in what these studios were doing since they had already been paid but they started threatening lawsuits over whether this would get released to theaters or released to direct market. Um, the fighting kind of died down because James Cameron, who had just come off of uh, this is pre Titanic post T2 Cameron um, was briefly attached. Um, but TSR started browbeating 20th century Fox to the point that he had to just drop it because they wanted to uh control the the merchandising on it which was part of the initial package that they sold right uh -huh. as part of the royalties so 20th century fox is like well we're not going to do anything with you if we can't use the merchandising um and so they they dropped it cameron's contracted with 20th century fox and so he moves on to titanic um, so we we could at this point have had a James Cameron directed D&D movie, which is just bananas to me. <laughs> I feel like we'd be talking about the maybe the, the third or fourth D&D movie. I, exactly. Right. Um, so uh, 97 comes uh, Joel Silver, who is best probably best known for Die Hard, um, joins and he does what I honestly think is the way you do. Uh, an adaptation of this property and you do a tv series instead of uh, a film right like i think they're planning one now honestly if if i were producing something like this with like netflix or amazon or whoever whoever has the rights to it they already put out adventure modules right you see them over my shoulder here like they have a lot of them mm -hmm. you make an anthology show and you adapt the the adventure module per episode like they're broken out into chapters <laughs> you don't have to do a whole lot of work to do it um but uh meanwhile tsr gets sold to wizards of the coast right uh, so at this point gygax has been ousted uh and it's being run by a woman named lorraine williams who is the i think she's still alive but she is kind of the heiress to the buck rogers um uh estate right 
Mm. Which I thought it was funny when you were texting me last night while you were hate tweeting out this movie at me. I, <laughs> that you I, mentioned Buck Rogers. I was like, oh God. I'm... <laughs> That's why I am I followed it up with, wait, don't do any research. Uh because her like so she basically ousted Gygax by doing backdoor business stuff with with the the bloom brothers and increasing her her stake in the company to yeah, the point phrasing, that she could just phrasing, Zach. anyways continue. Oh. <laughs> uh to 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 kick him out and so at this point she was pretty much the the mover and shaker behind the company because they they did they didn't have an ipo like uh hasbro does now but all of all of the people who sat on the board had a certain stake in the company based on their investment in it and she came for money and so she had the biggest stake in the company so she um you know negotiates the the sale of tsr to watsi um and she fully just tells the producers of this this movie oh yeah yeah, yeah. no wizards of the coast yeah they'll totally allow tv that was a part of the agreement that they made, right? Um, the uh, so now at this point uh, in the process, this film has uh, sunk three and a half million dollars into direct production in terms of storyboards, uh, script drafts, uh, things like that. Um, so Courtney Solomon becomes the director because the contract with TSR is running up as Watsi's uh, purchase of the company is steadily approaching. Um, so it needs to get made, right? Because otherwise he's given them all of this money for nothing, which happens a lot apparently in Hollywood where writers will get paid a lot of money to adapt their book series or their, their first novel or whatever. And then it just sits in development hell. But like, when Warner Brothers does it, like they can afford to do that. <laughs> I don't know how much money this guy has dropped at this point. Um, Cause I don't know how that three and a half million is, is divvied up, but he um, now by helming this, he is now uh, in charge of the highest budget independent film produced. Um, Cause it, it has a $35 million budget. Um, so at the time that's, that's a lot, right? Um, they wrote it as part one of a trilogy. Um, the the film, as we see it at this point, is a collection of scenes from 16 different drafts of the screenplay. Wow. Which kind of makes sense how choppy it is, I think. Yes, um, it does. Like, like I said, it's largely based on Mysteria, um, which is the setting of the, the, the basic set. Um but they had he like he had to base, basically make it even more generic than Nastara, which Nastara in the basic set for anyone who's not aware, um, it's it's about as generic fifteenth century Europe as you can get, <laughs> right? Like so to make it even more generic from that, like he he doesn't have the rights to Nastara, so strips out everything just okay yeah there's magic in here and there's dragons um but only like i don't think they ever actually say red or gold dragon in it if i remember uh the rod is a rod to get red dragons yeah red dragon control yeah mm -hmm. um 
but yeah, like they they never mention like any chromatic or metallic no. or anything like that no. because doing that would violate that that trademark. <laughs> um, they shoot it in Prague. It, it was hilarious how that was very explicitly specified several times through the movie. They're like control of red dragons, and I'm like, okay, they're red. Like, what makes them special? Why is it only red dragons? Is are there a lot of them? Are they specially powerful? You know, so it's it's just like it's a it's a detail without any kind of additional detail. Well, yeah, and and yeah, the the context for that also is that there's uh, so the metallic dragons are the good dragons. So that's um, mm-hmm. gold, silver, bronze, copper. I whatever the fifth one is mm-hmm. um and uh chromatic which are you know red red blue green white black i think mm-hmm. um which yeah like there's a trademark on these different types of dragons um that that tsr holds which is why they they can only be like yes this is the colored dragon not the <laughs> not the the type of dragon it is Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah right. it's just um, like the, with the the back knowledge of you knowing that that it has some context and value just yeah. blank watching the movie as a viewer it's a super <laughs> superfluous detail almost even sillier because they specify it's the so red boy. dragons so it's like it could just be a rod to control dragons and we just happen to see only red ones on the screen then yeah. it wouldn't be a detail that doesn't make sense well so <laughs> so um this movie uh, again shot in prague uh it's the first film to use the sedlik ossuary uh profion's or i'm sorry last night you said you you, will there's no way you're gonna remember these people's names jeremy irons lab in this movie is shot in the sedlik ossuary um the actors had to do their own stunts um, the director and the cast claim that they actually used real swords. Wow. During it, which I don't know if that's a good idea, but my, my gut says no. It's not a good um, idea. <laughs> that, like, there were two or three times where a stunt actor was used, but it was mostly for like acrobatic scenes. Where like he he jumps into the the um the the thieves guild. Uh, maze that he has to go through things like that um so as as far as prep goes for this um marlon wayans had been playing DD since high school which is wild to me because i would have never thought that yeah he he was a DD player um ehrenberg the guy that played the dwarf uh played regularly um jeremy irons learned about it because he had kids so he was just kind of tangentially aware of, of what this thing was. Um, Justin Whelan watched a few games at a local convention and determined that it was largely about arguing. Um, and uh, yes. then the um, a fun fact that I came up with that, that I didn't find out until reading uh, into this is that uh you know in in the the scene where uh, marlon wayans is trapped in that carp that uh carpet yeah the gooey carpet yeah that gooey carpet it looks like oatmeal but yeah yeah well okay, so funnily enough that's six thousand liters of quaker oats okay um other apparently other thickening agents would sink to the bottom and it would just look like dirty water 
uh-huh. he was sinking into. Uh, but Quaker Oats would actually hold their shape so the artists could make it look like a carpet. Um, and then he just they, they just had a scissor lift. So they did it over three takes. And he said that it was probably the worst thing he's ever had to do in a movie ever. Mm-hmm. Um, like even to this day, you know, he he'll, he says that, you know, I, I quote, I grew, grew up eating oatmeal and I don't want to ever eat it again. Now I really want to stay away from it. <laughs> Right. This is this is a man who's been on scene or at least involved in production with several scary movies. Like, yes. Uh, and yes. Um. So, so the fact that he says that has a lot of weight. Yeah. Exactly. Now, so for for post uh, post production and release, um, in terms of marketing for this movie. There was like none. Um, the uh, dndmovie.com was bought and was used primarily as as the advertising arm for it. Um, New Line picked up the distribution rights. Uh, and then there were some role-playing supplements released digitally. Um, I actually have the PDF, like on the uh, the DVD disc, uh, there's a, it's a DVD-ROM. So if you put it in a computer, you can pull the file off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a PDF of the fast play version of this, which for anyone not aware, this is right before third edition came out. So in second edition, there were things to get, um, that were even more basic than the basic version. Cause basic still required you to have like polyhedral dice. The fast plays just assume, Oh, um, you want to give it a try, uh, raid your monopoly set for the d6s and it'll oh. just just use d6s um called the sewers of sumdal so part one is set in the thieves guild part two is damodar's refuge which is the the bit with the the carpet and, and all that and then the the third section of it is savril's crypt with uh you know you can play as pre-gen characters um i i don't know why <laughs> I don't know why they did a lot of things in this movie. So the, <laughs> the reason you would ha- have like advertising aimed at people who were already familiar with D is to get them excited for this movie. Why would you release marketing materials to people completely unfamiliar <laughs> with this game? Like what you're trying to get them interested in the game so that they get interested in the movie. Like, yes, I, I feel like you're, you're skipping over <laughs> a segment of, of people by, by doing that. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they determined a, a release schedule with wizards of the coast to, to yeah, fall. That, fall that almost be like, so you have that, uh, don't, not going to touch upon Will Smith, but that Will Smith movie, King Richard, Maybe like the marketing for that movie coming with like a really cheap tennis racket and some tennis balls to want yeah. you to really get into tennis so yeah. that you want to go see the King Richard movie. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 you're working backwards, okay? You're doing you're doing the hard way, you know? That'd be, exactly. like, that'd be like wanting to have somebody to go on a date with you and you're going to take them to McDonald's. So you're going to give yeah. them like a McDonald's gift card so they eat a bunch. So then when you ask them on a date, you want to go to McDonald's. Oh, well, you already got the hooks in them, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, and, and, and it's, yeah, it's just bizarre that no one between the, the, the studio, between TSR, between Wizards of the Coast at this point, like, you didn't think you needed to, in, like, involve a marketing agency for that? Like, why, why 
why would you do that this way? It makes no sense. Um, but but they they did work together at least to release this movie around the same time that that uh, Wizards of the Coast was putting out the third edition. Um, a lot of that was was I think predetermined by TSR already having had enough stuff done on third edition because like my third edition books i got them as soon as they came out and i still have the tsr logo on them like i, I don't have watsy versions of of the uh, the third edition books um they they played the first full trailer uh at dragon con in 2000 wow what a momentous moment that must have been right <laughs> um justin whalen it's very important to to specify at what moment what day and what time was that actually played that would have greatly influenced the reception (laughs) um that's all i'll say about that yeah i mean i'm imagining it's in the ballroom Uh like one of the the ballrooms right because like this would have been a a big like thing like i i kind of want to uh speak to someone who was there in 2000 be like was this like a big shit deal or or was it just Uh not like was it one of the smaller like viewing rooms (laughs) um because i mean how how well did they like did they actually put in in the schedule this is the trailer for the D &D movie or did they just say a surprise role-playing experience Uh um but uh waylon and solomon were there for q a um new lines claim now is that they only bought it uh that or only bought the distribution rights to it to excite the fantasy film base for larger productions because the very next year they put out fellowship of the ring Mm. which i again i don't know how how much marketing that (laughs) really talk about to really talk about the fact that those came out so close um, yeah, in the same genre. And you're just talking yeah. about vastly different chasms in Ex- quality. Exactly. Like, I don't understand how, like, it seems like anyone could just walk into a marketing position at this point. Because, like, why would you buy the rights to this movie and go, yeah, it'll make people excited for, for fantasy movies. <laughs> No, like I like this movie, and no, like that's not how. <laughs> that's yeah. not what this is for. Um, you know, at this point, they've made the uh, in in two thousand five rather they they made the uh, the TV sequel, which I have called Wrath of the Dragon God. Uh, Bruce Payne as Damodar, Mister Blue Lips comes back. Comes back. Yeah, he comes back. He gets he gets uh, summoned. He gets resurrected. Hey, there's uh, it's, a sequel to this? There's two sequels to this. Oh. <laughs> uh, I've never seen the third. The third is called Book of Vile Darkness, and it was direct to DVD in the UK only. And so it's in a region that like I, I don't have a UK player. I'm not gonna buy a UK player to watch mm-hmm. the third. The second one, like it's the only reason I have it is that it's uh it's bundled on like a one disc thing with the the Blu-ray of this movie. Uh-huh. Um, so like I've seen it once it's, it's real bad. Like it's, it's worse than this. It's, it would be as if you gave someone like a $10,000 budget and they went to Goodwill and bought costumes and then you shot in an empty field and then added Mm -hmm. everything in CG later, but not like good CG, like stuff that was in 
like iMovie natively. All right, so I'm just gonna <laughs> throw that out there. We are never reviewing that together. No, 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 no. I would never ask that. I would, I would never ask that. That's a bridge too far. Um, 2023. So just next year, they're they're releasing a reboot film. Um, they a few days ago announced the name as Honor Among Thieves. Mm-hmm. It's I. Sweet Pea Entertainment is involved again because apparently they per- purchased the movie rights to this property in perpetuity. Mm. So, and wow. that's a large part of why it has taken so long for them to get this off the ground because Sweet Pea Entertainment is still around and they they hold the rights to it. Um, and so they're having to work like, obviously they have a title card in there based on Dungeons and Dragons by Hasbro. But it's it's solely uh, the production companies are Entertainment One, which is a Canadian company, and Sweepy. Still, yeah, um, and you you have to work off the ground floor that this established for you as well. Yeah, well, I, so so, <laughs> uh, like I'm looking at the um, the cast list for the sequel, and it's got Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith. Uh, Sophia Lillis and Hugh Grant. Wow. Uh, John, what are their names? John Daly and Jonathan Goldstein are directing. Um, they did Game Night. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, apparently, uh, a television series is coming as well. Uh, I don't know how well it's going to do. I would assume that they learned some lessons with this one. Uh, (laughs) I have great love for this because it is nostalgic. Uh, (laughs) It's a very, like, I, I understand that it's, it's very, it's very shallow, but there's something in the attempt that amuses me. Um, I, I have I have no words to respond to that. Head. <laughs> so, what was your because this was your first time in in since seeing it or had just having it on in the background, just sitting and watching it. So, what was your experience? Because my like, so I I saw this when I was a teenager and was like super duper stoked, and then had to sit in the car ride home while everyone else in the car was just bummed just super bummed at having sat for an hour and a half to watch this yeah i feel like i i would have been that other person another squished person in the car yeah um i don't have a uh, a young introduction to dungeons and dragons other than me being aware of it as an entertainment property um maybe i've seen some of those cartoons uh that came out um so this uh i and really that was it wasn't really hate texting it was just trying to process <laughs> what i was experiencing um, in a healthy way yeah uh in texting you yesterday so i guess i'm gonna go two different approaches with this so let me start with the appreciative approach so the, the empathetic <laughs> appreciative approach is that in set design, like you mentioned, and in some of the costuming, you can see that people have put effort into it. Yeah. Um, to think that 
um, even in some of the CG stuff, you can see someone was trying to do something. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it just was not succeeding. Um, but in some of the things, like in the sets and et cetera, you can see that there's involvement. Even the dwarf, who I, I mentioned to you several times yesterday, befuddled me as to why he was actually in the movie. Um, yeah. Because he just doesn't... He's You have an actor who's very strongly committing to this role, and like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to be kind of grumpy, but also serve as like sometimes a comedic element. Um, and... Uh, but it just doesn't make sense from a story perspective why he's there. So the movie does read a lot like if you're listening to Friends do a rendition of a D&D campaign. But yeah. if you're if you're at a tabletop surrounded with your friends, they're your friends. <laughs> Ostensibly, you like them, right? So there's the buy-in there, and you're playing make-believe together. Mm -hmm. this is a session of make-believe by people who are supposed to be pro professional actors. Yeah. Uh, some of them succeeding more than others. Like I, I would state because uh, Jeremy Irons doesn't, doesn't really have a lot of screen time in this movie mm -hmm. um, compared to um, his lackey, Mr. Blue Lips, who comes across as much more charismatic, has a better costume, um, has better lines. Um, and from what I understand of the aficionado for this film, uh, amongst the aficionados, has a place of, you know, um, sentiment, strong sentiment attached to his character. And I, I can see why. Um, and then uh, you have, like, references to different spells that are within the D&D canon. So the same kind of experience yeah. you'd have in... A Marvel movie when they mention something else that is off screen, but you hear the reference, so you know what it is. You know, okay, stupefy, or you know, not really stupefy, but there's another thing she mentions when she yeah. talks about not wanting to ever date Ridley's character and all that. Um, and uh, so, oh, right, that cring the the cringy dialogue of yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the guy who plays Ridley is also plays. Uh, Jimmy um, in uh, The Adventures of Superman, which is the um, the TNT TV show. Yeah, um, which I've never seen. But... Yeah, which I, I watched a lot of growing up. Um, you know, I was entertained by it. And so yeah. I remembered him from that. And so he does have some charisma. When his, when his friend, played by uh, Mr. Wayans, um, dies... <laughs> the amount of commitment he has to that death, it's just yeah. laughable. Yeah, it's, <laughs> he really gives it weight, though. You can see that he's just really committing. They're um, trying. Like, there's no one in this movie that is, like, even Jeremy Irons, who was probably on set for, like, three days. Yeah. I'm guessing, just based on the amount of scenes he has. Mm -hmm. He chews a lot of scenery up. Like, yeah. everyone is like a, attempting they're making they're not just there to collect a paycheck yeah <laughs> right. they're attempting so um yeah so the thing about that is though is like i was saying is that you know it you get it 
an experience where it's like people narrating their D&D campaign, but they're not really your friends. <laughs> um, it's conceivably supposed to be a film, so you'd want to be entertained. Yeah. Um, and so you have kind of the narrative skips that you'd have if you, you know, played a couple sessions of an entire campaign, you know, having to pick back up, set the scenery, get in a new environment. When uh, Wayne's character dies and uh, for good measure gets thrown off the top of the castle, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, that's probably the most entertained I was during this film. Um, <laughs> not because I'm in my dislike for his character. Um, yeah. But mostly just because, you know, Ridley's character is so committed to, you know, the loss of his friend. And then the uh, Blue Lips villain, for good measure, just throws him off the castle. Like, I stabbed you, then I'm going to throw you off this castle top, just to make sure you're dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, hilarious. Uh, and then Jeremy Irons getting eaten by, uh, like I texted you yesterday, this Chuck E. Cheese dragon. Like the rigging that you could see in this dragon's motions, um, yeah. where like the 3D model was being bent at these specific points to like come eat him, and yeah. watching the dragons fly through the air, oh, so painful. The, so this, yeah, the, this movie, like the CG, especially with the dragons, like pull up a clip on YouTube if you're listening and watch the just the last like ten minutes of this movie. Um, this movie is a casualty, I think, of coming out in the year 2000, where, you know, if you had Stan Winston directing this in 93, it would probably look amazing because mm. he he does a lot of practical stuff. This coming out in 2000 by a no-name director <laughs> who was just trying to crank out something, um... Yeah, it's it's CG. Like they they're like, oh yeah, we can do C, we can do anything with CG. We can just make make all these dragons. And it's like, mm. even Steven Spielberg used mainly practical. Like, there's very little CG in Jurassic Park, yeah. right? There's it's, very little CG in Lost World. It's it's mainly practical that's been blown up, and they you know using in camera effects and things. Yeah, to, give, to give things weight, and then. CG to help you do things that you can't really yeah. do. And like, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, oh yeah, these are red dragons and oh, these are gold dragons or whatnot. Like they're, they're, they're poorly animated to the point that they're, they're physically indistinguishable from one mm -hmm. another, at least to me. Like I'm, I'm colorblind. So I have no idea if there's, there's like a huge color difference between them. They just kind of look brownish. Mm -hmm. to me uh like there's no physical differences between them um like there would be in the games like they just generically look like dragons like they, they look like draco from Dragonheart. <laughs> just not as good that, yeah definitely not as good um yeah. so yeah that's the appreciative angle the uh the other uh -oh. critical angle is that it's a pain to watch um physically painful uh i had i had two high gravity beers and i still could not um <laughs> medicate away the pain of watching this movie um i don't have any nostalgia for it uh so that that always you know puts yeah. you at a disadvantage um and i wasn't really interested in the story or the characters yeah. um 
Blue Lips was entertaining um, in his dialogue. Uh, you know, there's a reason he came back for the sequel. That's yeah. like hundreds of years in the future. Yeah, <laughs> for some uh, reason, <laughs> um, was entertaining enough. Um, but uh, yeah, this, I would never watch this movie again voluntarily. <laughs> um, without an abundance of chemical assistance. And even then I'd probably want to watch something else with that yeah. much chemical assistance. Yeah. I've never watched this movie in that way. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this is, it's just, uh, I don't, I don't usually say, I, I will say that this is a bad movie in so much that it doesn't really succeed in what it was trying to do. Um, there's no sense of awe or, or wowness. Uh, the swashbuckling bit wasn't very swashbuckly. Uh, when he's trying to go through that maze in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Um, and you have that den of thieves. And uh, it seems like yeah. there was there was three, three lines of dialogue that I mentioned to you yesterday that seemed like three different takes. Um, yes. You know, who the hell are you? Uh, who the hell is this? And then the guy goes, I don't know who the hell you are. Yeah, I don't know who the hell you are. And they just put him back to back, you know, because why not at this point? Which that um, guy is Richard O'Brien, who is Riff Raff from Rocky Horror. Yeah, yeah. The surprise, like, I don't, I don't, like, there are so many, or not so many, they're, like, Jeremy Irons is stunt casting, right? Because mm-hmm. he, he would have been, he would have been well known, at least at the time. Like, I think he was coming off a really critically panned version of Lolita at the time which is bad like no one needs to like watch the kubrick version from the 50s don't watch 97 97 lolita is gross um yes it is it is a thing but um so you have jeremy irons you have richard o'brien who i didn't pick up on it at the time but once i i had gotten to like high school or college age even i was like Oh shit! That's Riff Raff. What is he doing? Is the 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 thieves guild leader in this movie? Uh, you have Tom Baker, who is the fourth Doctor Who, um, mm-hmm. is the the elf that heals them. Um, you know, like I, I don't know how they convince some of these people to be in this movie with as small a budget as this. Is. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. No. So uh, thank you for. for watching this i hate that it was physically painful for you to watch it you know i i try to um, come from a appreciative angle and so that's i well, did manage so, to get stuff out of it in that regard practice so it's, I guess. it's it's funny it's and it, this is also what admittedly i think makes it a badly written movie i mean if even if you overlook the fact that this is cobbled together over 16 different drafts right mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I, I can appreciate with what they're doing in it is that it, it follows the plot of the first time someone DMs a game for their friends and all they have access to is the basic set, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have the two characters who are friends who are probably your close friends who are playing. And then, you know, a third person who says, Oh, I want to play. And it's like, okay, well, how do I jam them together? Well, you're a mage in this mage tower and um, you, you guys are trying to steal some shit from it. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then, you know, there's an encounter there. They fight off Damodar for, for whatever reason, or Bruce Payne, Blue Lips. Um, and then the mage just teleports him out of there, which, I, sure, I, teleport's a really high-level spell, but sure, yeah, she can just teleport them out of there. Mm -hmm. Um and I mean, granted, I think I think she uses an item if if memory serves. Um, and then they run into this this fourth buddy who said he wants to play a, a dwarf that apparently lives in a trash pile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when when it, it turns out they're wanted, you know, they're all wearing black cloaks and they pull down the hoods so that they're not recognized. And it's like, well, no, like it's broad daylight on a street. Like, of course you're recognized, but sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. That'll hide you. Sure. Um, they have their most Eisley cantina with, with, uh, you know, the first NPC that kind of ropes them into the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, you have one of them dying, taking on a threat that they were, far too low level for um being taken in by npcs and redirected yeah like it it follows generally baby's first D, &D campaign now <laughs> right which I, that... I appreciate having having started playing when i was like 10 or so mm -hmm. like i appreciate the poorly written uh adventure version <laughs> of mm -hmm. this like i can kind of see what they were going for the problem with that is this is a $45 million movie for a mainstream audience. And so yeah. you're not, you don't have people who have those same experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, so they're just like, okay, so this is okay. That's weird. Sure. Let's yeah. The dude's just living in a trash pile. Okay. What's, Oh, they're doing what now? What is that in the bar? Like, why can we talk about that orc? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> You think you think that was as far as like the. I want to make two two points, so that whole like sequence and your appreciation of it is is mm -hmm. one point I want to touch on. The first point though is the narrative track that that followed. Yeah, that doesn't. On on a good faith interpretation, yeah. that was intentional, yeah. um, where it mirrors like a campaign. On the other hand, it could just be poor writing. <laughs> oh no, no, it's yeah, like that. That's what I'm saying. Is that yeah. it's I I appreciate it for. I don't know. I mean, yes, it is. It is poor writing. But but the on the other half, the appreciation bit, which I wanted to touch on, which goes hand in hand with that. Um, the the readout of this movie that I'm seeing you seeing you have is like when you have. Um, like a Russian literature professor, right? Yeah. And they know their Tolstoy, you know, and they know, you know, their other, other big works. But then they're, you're hearing them talk about like a very minor writer in this period of time that maybe wrote maybe one or two books, you know, and kind of fizzled out. Yeah. But they're having a lecture or a section of lecture on this minor writer and talking about how they could see the influence of this previous work and how also the influence influence of some of these folk elements that are in it. It's a very informed interpretation that's enriched by the informed interpretation. Uh, when in reality, like the actual material doesn't really stand on its own. 
exactly. but but as a as a means to uh, to serve as a vehicle for that informed interpretation can bring some entertainment in that respect. Yeah. So that's actually a really good analogy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Like it, you're right. Like it, it's it's poor writing. It's it's cobbled together. Again, 16 drafts of a scroll. Like, you, you normally don't have that many. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially at the, the brisk pace that this was shot. I think this was shot in, like, a month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, it's... it's um, it, is, it is poor writing. On the other hand, it's the same sort of poor writing that you see from first-time dms who are opening up their basics or their essentials kit or what what have mm-hmm. you um you know it's it's predictable you're you're not really going to weave in too many like drastically divergent plot points mm-hmm. um you're going to have uh you know the thieves guild betray you right or the 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 leader of the thieves guild betray you um and then a powerful guy come in and stop it, right? <laughs> um, like you're you're going to have very predictable things like that. Like, you know, I guess one, don't ever trust the leader of a thieves guild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I um I like this movie. I'll probably watch it again after we get get done recording this. Jesus. And that's 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 all right, you know. That's yeah, totally yeah. Great. No, every everyone is entitled to like their shitty yeah. <laughs> entertainment. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I I'm curious to see what direction the new one takes because, like, the logo for it is a hundred. Oh, the logo for this one is not any near anywhere near what D and D was ever like using as, in terms of like font for marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this one's a little bit closer tied in because it's at least using the fifth edition font <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and and lettering for its its title. Um, so I I don't know I I feel like this will probably be a bit better. I think CG is good enough that you know I, I'm not sure what their budget is, but they, if they have Chris Pine in it, I assume it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Fingers crossed that this will actually be good. Um, yeah, it'll. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's tied to direct it or production has been set up or anything like that. Uh, well, I, my understanding is that it's it's completed. Um, oh, it's see. just waiting for a release then. Yeah, they. Uh, let's see, honor among thieves. No, 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 no. Let's see, Dungeons and Dragons. Nope, not the one we were just talking about. The reboot. Uh, let's see. So yeah, uh, 2019 is when uh, Goldstein and Daly started on it. Um, which, if you ever watched um, Freaks and Geeks, John Francis Daly is uh, Sam uh, Weir in Freaks and Geeks. Uh which is just funny to me. I can't believe that like he's my age, but you know, mm-hmm. there, there we are. That's that's the way the passage of time works. Um, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So, so yeah, filming was in April of 2021 uh, with 60 to 70 people in Iceland. And then they wrapped up in Belfast, Ireland later in April. So August 19th is when they, they actually finished filming like reshoots and stuff and it was done. Um, so it was supposed to come out in 2020, November of 2021, uh, apparently to accommodate the release of Mission Impossible 7. Then got pushed back to May 27th of this year uh, due to COVID. That didn't happen, obviously. Uh, and then they're pushing back to March of 2023. Um, wow. Yeah. So I'm seeing here with the TV show that they have the pilot done but various networks and streaming companies are bidding on distribution rights hmm. so yeah i don't know i have uh i'm i'm hoping that this this next one does well um i'm sure that tons of of those types of people on the internet are going to be shitty about it though um yep like there's a huge contingent of people that are just like so against anything fifth edition D Mm-hmm. it's it's um it's really funny like it has its flaws but like it's probably the best version of D, like the, the easiest to understand mm-hmm. um so yeah. <laughs> yeah you can't you get people that just get really committed to something that they love and that i think um when it's not a life or death thing, it, it doesn't always really make sense to me to use what something that you love and you're really, really committed to, to yeah. inform what you hate because it yeah. isn't what you love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's very strange to see groups of people who are like on D and D forums who like, will openly say like this game sucks people should play pathfinder instead or whatever right mm-hmm. um yeah it's just it's very bizarre to me like the narrative that people like all, all you have to do is do a brief wikipedia search mm-hmm. um but like there are people to this day that insist that uh Watsi did a hostile takeover of tsr and like gary gygax was there like defending it and he got pushed out and it's like no no like he was pushed out like 10 years before watsy bought it and it was because tsr was like 30 days from being insolvent as a company and they, mm-hmm. they willingly sold it <laughs> like the, what what is this bizarre world that you live in that you just don't care about any of the facts but okay <laughs> oh man i can't wait to see how many uh any bad reviews this episode gets yeah you just uh, you hit you hit all the good points sack to to get let the hate flow yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> give it to me it's just nom, 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 nom. <laughs> send your tears in a postmark to this address yeah uh, PO Box 3089 <laughs> oh okay so with, with that um 
what are we what are what are we uh what are we talking about next let me let me pull up the calendar here uh, <laughs> um let's see uh so next i think you and i are talking about the film much better film uh, uh werewolves within uh and the current book club book with uh stuart and i are uh let's see it's uh, ready player two um so look forward to that we'll probably be talking about that in a few weeks but uh yeah in the meantime uh watch werewolves within and we'll see you guys next time all right bye folks <laughs> bye